Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So this Advent season, we're looking at people in Jesus' family tree, uh, learning about hope, how to receive it, how to carry hope, that, so that we can become people who spread hope. That's really the theme for the season for us. And in Matthew's genealogy, which is what we're looking at, the Ruth's name is mentioned uh, in Jesus' genealogy. You might want to actually go home today and read the book of Ruth. It's just a short four chapters. It's about a 15-minute read, and I think it's one of the most inspiring stories in the whole Bible. In fact, uh, we've actually got in January starting a group that uh, is going to be actually studying the book of Ruth as part of their study to try to understand how we find healing and purpose through difficulty and all the stuff going on in our lives led by a fantastic leader. I'm really looking forward to that group. So if you'd like to join that, just look on the screen, look for more information coming up. We'd love to introduce you and get you in that group. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, it'd be really easy for us to treat it like a Hallmark movie. I mean, it's basically the story of the young woman who, whose husband dies, leaving her with no hope and everything in the world is against her. And she finds true love in a new husband and a gift of a child after years of being barren and unable to have a child. It, there's so much more to the story. And this story is actually as much Naomi's story as it is Ruth's story. So we're going to read a quick snapshot of just a few of the verses. And then as we go through, you'll get more of the story. It will become apparent as we go through. The context is Naomi and her husband Elimelech were forced to leave Israel and live among the Moabites because of a famine in Israel. Shortly after they leave and go there, Elimelech, her husband, dies. While they're still there, her two sons decide to marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And ten years later, they're still childless, and both of her sons die. That happens in six verses. Let's go to verse 7. With her two daughters-in-law, Naomi left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And the story goes on and Orpah weeps and doesn't want to do it, but finally takes Naomi up on the offer and leaves. And then we come to verse 15 and Ruth is still there. And Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to go back or leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And then skip forward to the end of the chapter, the end of the book in verse chapter 4. And it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he had made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women of the area said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel, the child that was born. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. 
Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of the guy who had become King David. So this is a non-traditional family, isn't it? Two women related by marriage, devastated by the loss of their husbands. For Naomi, both of her sons are lost to death. Naomi is old. And Ruth, a Moabite, will have to be the breadwinner in this family. And the Moabites, as they go back to Israel, the Moabites were perennial enemies of Israel. And yet, as we see at the end of the story, Ruth marries an Israelite and becomes the grandmother by blood of the greatest of all Jewish kings, David, and is in the lineage of our Savior of the world, Jesus. I think it's amazing. God, in his lineage for Jesus, includes people who were at one time outside the faith, despised outside the church, not well looked upon, morally reprehensible to people. And in it, we see God's heart has always been for all the people, especially the poor, the oppressed, and the outcast. So whatever you're facing today, whatever problem you have in your life or your family today, This story of Tamar last week and the story of Ruth and Naomi this week encourages that God is actively working to restore you, to restore your family, and bring good to your life, no matter how painful, difficult, frustrating, shameful, or even hopeless life is. Now, I've kind of started by focusing on the hope fulfilled and the end result of the story, but honestly, throughout much of this story, For Ruth and Naomi, by all accounts, it didn't look like God was bringing them good. It didn't feel like God was loving or caring for them at all. Naomi says in in, in verse 13, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Is God good to Naomi? Does God care for this lonely, broken-hearted widow? Naomi looks at her life and says, It sure doesn't seem like it. Maybe you felt like that. Maybe some of you feel like that right now toward God. Naomi is a childless old widow. She's out of options. We often look at the story of Job in the Bible and think, wow, he had it rough. And yeah, he certainly did have it rough. But one could make a good argument that Naomi actually had it worse. At least Job had options. He was a man in a patriarchal society with a wife and a reputation that was good. Finding a way to get back on his feet would have been far easier compared to Naomi. Do you ever feel like in your own life God isn't there? Like God is actually against you? You prayed prayers. You wonder if anyone is listening. Maybe you don't don't like your job. Maybe... Tragedy has struck, leaving you feel like you're a boat uh, without motor or oars in a choppy sea. Or maybe, or maybe you're living life numb. You're just running through life from one deadline to the next. Because if you ever let yourself slow down for a moment and be still, you don't like your life all that much. So you just keep the rat race going. Avoid the empty, angry feeling of, where's God in all of this? and What's he up to? For those of you who need hope, This story of Naomi and Ruth can help give you hope. So let's take a little deeper look at the characters of the story. First, we're going to look at Naomi, and a little bit later, we'll look at Ruth. So at the end of the story, we see hope fulfilled, Naomi cradling her grandson, Obed. But according to the Leverite law, Obed was actually much more special to her than that. Though birthed by Ruth, Obed was Naomi's child to carry on the name of her husband, Elimelech. But at the beginning... 
in the very few verses that we summarized, if you actually read between the lines in the very first verses of this book about Amalek and Naomi, Amalek's name actually means God is king. So think about this. They leave their family in a day when almost nobody ever did that. They go to the land of their enemies to escape a famine where they are most likely subjected to discrimination. Her husband dies, and even as she is saying his name as she's burying him, she is saying, God is king. Her two sons go on and shortly later to marry Moabite women, which was certainly painful as the Moabites worshipped a god called Chemosh and practiced child sacrifice. And apparently the pain continues as the sons and their wives are barren for 10 years. Remember, this is a culture where family means everything. And then both sons die, childless. I mean, such bitter grief for Naomi, for her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. All of her means of economic support, dead. Naomi's parents are dead. She's too old to remarry. She has no heirs to care for her to look after her. She is destitute and consumed with grief. So in this time, Naomi hears that the famine has ended back home in Israel, so she thought, maybe I can go back home after 10 years to Bethlehem and find someone to care for me. Remember, in that ancient culture, we talked about it last week, once married, the responsibility was on the in-laws to carry for the daughters-in-law. So Naomi starts to go back, and the daughters-in-law start to go with her. But as they are on the way, Naomi realizes there's no hope. There's no real prospects for Orpah and Ruth in Israel. And in fact, you'll see a couple places in the text where it becomes evident that the, the, the text indicates there was actually real danger for Ruth and Orpah to go with her back to Israel since they were part of Israel's enemies. So Naomi begs the two daughter-in-laws to go back home to their own families, to stay in their own country with their own gods, fearing for their safety and for their future. So after weeping, finally, Orpah finally hugs and kisses and leaves Naomi to return to her family. But Ruth refuses and goes with Naomi to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown. And the text tells us that the whole town of Bethlehem was stirred, it says, when they walked in. Yet because of what you see elsewhere in the text, you realize that that stirring, I mean, Boaz at one time says, only work my field because my people can protect you. Don't go anywhere else. So I suspect that this stirring was not all red carpet welcome home after 10 years away. There was real danger, especially for Ruth. The people, of course, when she gets home, call her by her name, Naomi, which means pleasantness. But Naomi, after all the pain, actually asks the people to instead call her Mara, which means bitterness. She goes on to say, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I think it's really interesting. Earlier, Naomi refers to God using the covenant name of God, the name of God who is faithful, loving, committed to us, close to us, caring for us. But here, she uses almighty, powerful God. Have you ever been in a place, I have, have you ever been in a place where you haven't necessarily lost faith in God's existence or his power, but you've at least lost a measure of faith in God's goodness and his love to be with you in whatever you're facing? Naomi's bitter. And she blames God. She's depressed. Wouldn't, wouldn't you be if you were her? I would pray. I would be. 
She's experienced at least eight major traumas in 10 years. She comes home a shell of who she was. You can feel the depression in her when she says, I'm empty. There's nothing inside. No joy, no nothing going on inside. Think about what Naomi is feeling. But also think about it from this perspective. Who's standing next to her while she's saying this? Ruth is, right? The one who said, I'm willing to go with you until you die and be with you until you die. I'm never going to leave you. See, isn't it easy for us in life to miss the awesome treasures that God has already placed in our lives when we are so overcome with grief or loss or bitterness or depression? We so easily miss that God already has someone in our lives who he's going to work through to save us, to bring hope to our lives. But that's, that's how depression works in our lives. We can't see what's right there in front of us. We can't see that if we simply keep going, if we just keep following God, relief and help is already with us and good is already on the horizon. We can't see it. So in depression and hopelessness, we blame God just like Naomi again. But who wouldn't blame God in that circumstance? In greater or lesser ways, we've all been there close to that point where the expectations we had for life aren't turning out. I mean, Naomi's picture of what God would do in her life, God just isn't doing that. That picture isn't coming to pass. The pain is real, but the pain blinds us as well. I think the story speaks to all of us, but it especially speaks to those of us who are in the middle of a similar kind of depression or struggle in our lives right now. Where's God? If nothing else... This story and the story of Tamar teach us just hold on. It's right there. Just hold on even when you can't see it. Now, please, don't, don't, don't you hear what I said just now about Naomi being critical? I mean, Naomi is this person of tremendous strength and courage. I mean, through what she's been through just to keep putting one foot in front of the other is amazing. To be thoughtful, and on top of that, to be thoughtful and gracious enough to give her daughters-in-law a way out by letting them leave her and go back home, even when that would mean that them leaving left her utterly alone and destitute. We had the privilege this last week of seeing um, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, and Mark Martell's Christmas concert at Nationwide uh, Arena last Sunday evening. And and doing so actually reminded us of one of Amy's songs she wrote during a time when a, a friend of hers had died and her parents' health was declining. And she was just trying to hold steady, just trying to, to figure out how to be a mom and process all the changes and the grief. Would you allow the words of this song as Maddie comes to sing it to us to just, just touch your heart?
this fight is better than a hallelujah sometimes The tears of shame for what's been done Silence when the words can come Better than a hallelujah sometimes As we pour out our miseries God just hears a melody Beautiful mess we are Beyond the skies breaking hearts As we pour out our miseries God just hears a melody Beautiful mess we are Beyond the skies I love the line in that. The honest cries of a breaking heart are better than a hallelujah. Can we be that real? Are we even in touch enough with our own emotions to be that real with God? To come with him, to him with that kind of honesty and brokenness? I mean, that's the, pri- that's the primary invitation of, of Naomi's story to us is to live with the courage to be honest and vulnerable and open with God, which is at the core of what it means for us to even carry hope and step into hope. But that's not all. Naomi is resilient enough to even in her depression, I mean, it has to come kind of smack her in the face, but when she sees hope smacking in her face, Ruth goes out at the harvest time to glean and, and if you carefully read the Old Testament law, it spells out that farmers are not to pick up that grain that falls on the ground or harvest all the way to the end rows, but they are to leave that grain or produce for the poor to come and gather it for themselves. It's called gleaning. That's what gleaning means. I think this law in the Bible is such an amazingly beautiful balance of mercy and generosity combined with assuring the dignity of the person by having them do the work to gather their own needs for themselves. Ruth stumbles into the field of Boaz and finds tremendous favor and protection. And the first day she's there, she gleans a whole lot and she comes home and Naomi sees her with so much that she goes, who's blessed you so much? That's amazing. And Ruth says, Boaz. And Naomi immediately breaks out, and hope hits her in the face, and she breaks out in blessing Boaz in the name of God. And in so doing, she is thanking God for not forgetting them. 
You can see that in chapter 2, 19 and 20, and it's actually the center point, the turning point for this whole story, those verses. Naomi still doesn't know how things are going to turn out. It took years for them to get even to that point, but she begins to see a glimmer of hope cracking through and thankfulness and blessing begin to emerge in her, the expression of hope. Ruth's Word choice, even in this moment, changes again from Almighty God back to using the the term for the loving covenant God who is close to her. It's not just this God who is powerful and distant, which we oftentimes look at God like, but God is close and He's loving. See, Naomi shows us that carrying hope is often just holding on. So that when a crack of hope comes, we're able to actually recognize it and begin to give thanks to God for it. So that's Naomi. What about Ruth? One of the most inspiring moments in the Bible is Ruth's answer to Naomi saying, you know, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. It's a remarkable statement. When you realize Ruth's decision to stay with Naomi leaves her with no real prospects for a better life. I mean, she's been a barren woman for 10 years in a culture that values family highly, going to a land where she's at best tolerated as a foreigner and more than likely going to be hated as an enemy. And it's reasonable to take even that thought line one step further. Naomi the one who is supposedly the example of the one who is following God, just gets done saying to Ruth, God is against me. God has made my life nothing but bitterness. And it's in that context that Ruth says, I'm going to follow your God. What we're examining there is actually Ruth's conversion moment. But why would Ruth even want to follow that God who Naomi believes is against her? I think the answer is actually in the story. Notice in Naomi asking the girls to go back to their families and their gods and leave Naomi alone, Naomi is actually praying a prayer of blessing over them, that God, the one true God of all the universe, Naomi's God, would show kindness to her pagan daughters-in-law, blessing them with husbands and children and all they long for. What's Naomi doing in that moment? Ruth knows. Ruth knows that if they leave Naomi, Naomi's last ounce of hope is gone. She's elderly. The social norm of the day was that Ruth and Orpah would be the ones to take care of her. Without them, she is truly and utterly desperate, helpless, and hopeless. So what's going on here? Naomi, because of the kind of love her God has given her, even in the depths of her desperation, is willing to sacrifice the last ounce of her security in life to bless and love Ruth. Certainly, Naomi doesn't want to be alone. But because she's loving Ruth and blessing Ruth in God's name, showing Ruth the kind of love that God is, that actually demonstrates God's sacrificial love and removes the cap of the spiritual black hole in Ruth's life. And God's love floods into her life. I mean, essentially, God touches Ruth, and Ruth is saying, if your God, Naomi, can make you love me like that, even in what you're going through, then I want that. That's what I want. And while this story is 3,000 years old, it's really no different today. And, and Jesus, and when he came 1,000 years later, taught us that's the way we love. 
And he taught us that how we love the world around us will determine how people encounter him and his love through us. I mean, think about it. Naomi could have excluded Ruth and Orpah from the beginning when her sons died. After all, they were pagan Moabites. Ruth and Orpah aren't yet even followers of Yahweh at this point, as is evident in Naomi's statement. Just go back to your own gods. Go back to your family and your own gods. But Naomi didn't exclude them, just like Jesus doesn't exclude us. When Jesus came, he befriended even the worst of sinners and loved them in radically shocking ways. Few, if any of us, are going to go as far as Julie, our guest speaker, a couple of weeks ago, where we're not going to probably end up going to the ultra-revolting pagan gatherings like Burning Man to show the love of Jesus. But, but who are the Burning Man people in your life here? The ones you are around who are so different, maybe even offensive to you. Could Jesus be calling you to identify your own Burning Man people in your life and love them radically, like, like Julie, like Naomi, like Jesus? See, this is the essence of following Jesus. And it's the way forward for Christianity and the Christian church in America. This kind of personal, radical, non-exclusionary love, it's powerful. And God's presence inhabits that when we act that way. But let's clarify, let's step back a second, let's clarify that word exclusionary because our culture likes to talk about that a lot. When Naomi blesses Ruth and Orpah, asking them to return to their homes, she's actually really crystal clear. The Hebrew is really, really clear that what she's using in the way she talks are words and, and ways of talking that our culture would actually accuse Ruth of being exclusionary in what she says. She says, the God I serve is the one true God. You go back to your false gods. Holding truth, especially when it is uncomfortable, is not exclusionary. Loving in a non-exclusionary way means you love sacrificially even when you don't agree, especially when you don't agree or believe the same about God or morality or sexuality or whatever the issue is. It's not exclusionary to believe that some other person's view on sex or politics or whatever the issue is, is wrong. It is exclusionary when that belief keeps you from loving sacrificially and personally. And it is exclusionary when that belief keeps us from blessing them in the name of God and wanting genuinely the best for them. See, the only way we reach our community is for all of us who are followers of Jesus to love this way that we see in Naomi. At the end of our service today, we're going to once again give the opportunity for you to come up and there's tables up here and we have ornaments and markers and you can write the name of your five on those ornaments. We talk about the five around here, whether it's three or five, just make up your number, whatever you want. But they're the five people in your life who are not followers of Jesus or who have walked away from active involvement in the body of Christ, his church. And your commitment is to pray for them for the next year and expect and look for God to provide ways for you to care for them and show them that even when they do things that are wrong or or disappointing that you will pursue them with love and grace, the love and grace of God. 
and that you will build a friendship strong enough that eventually faith becomes a normal, safe part of your friendship. To love in a self-sacrificial way that even when you are going through difficulty like Naomi, that they will say, if their God can make them love me like that, even when I know it costs them so much, even when a lot of junk is going on in their life and it's so hard in life, if they're willing to sacrifice for me and love me like that, then I want to know and I want to follow that God. I love watching, who, because uh, I know so many of you are living like this and building those kinds of relationships. And to me, that is the most exciting thing about church and faith, to watch people build those kinds of relationships. Let's get back to the Ruth story. Ruth goes on to glean in Boaz's field. And remember, gleaning was intended to provide for the poor, but it was also seen as the lowest social class role you could occupy on the social ladder even lower than the servants who are the ones who are actually getting paid to harvest the fields. As you read the story, it's clear that what stands out first about Ruth's character, especially to Boaz, is that she works hard without complaint. This foreigner is doing it because she loves Naomi. That's the first thing that attracts Boaz to her. And chapter 2, verse 11, just after that's noted in the text, Boaz says to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz at this point doesn't even know that he would become the answer to his own prayer that he just prayed right there. We talked last week about the practice of leveret marriage, and a really, it's a really strange and probably for many of us a revolting idea to us today. But leveret marriage in that day was when a woman's husband died and she had no sons to care for her. The brother-in-law or another relative was required to marry her to perpetuate the name of the dead brother and also to provide security for the woman. So when Ruth goes home and tells Naomi that it was Boaz who helped her be successful that day, Naomi is full of hope because she knows Boaz is one of the possible kinsman redeemers. That, that term is another way of saying Boaz was a relative who was in the line to fulfill this leveret law for Ruth and Naomi. And a spark of hope strikes. The act of Boaz that we see in this moment of doing this is actually foreshadowing Jesus' act towards us in the New Testament. The New Testament refers to Jesus' followers, us, as the bride of Christ. We are Ruth. We are Tamar, as we talked about last week. And it is Christ, like Boaz, who carefully fulfills the law to earn the right to save us, to marry us. But this whole story just doesn't resolve at this moment to become this big fulfillment all of a sudden. Several months pass, maybe longer. One day, Naomi instructs Ruth to pretty herself up and go to where Boaz was sleeping in the field. Because during the harvest, Boaz didn't waste time going home. He needed more time in the field, so he slept out in the field. Ruth is instructed to go take the blanket and uncover his feet and then lie down at, at his feet. And, and then Naomi says to Ruth, Boaz will tell you what to do then. I mean, this is kind of weird, right? I mean, this is uncomfortable. How many of you would like to be camping out in the field and all of a sudden have a woman come take your blanket and sleep at your feet? That's just awkward, right? Ruth does most of what Naomi says. When Boaz awakes, though, instead of waiting to be told what to do by Boaz, Ruth just up and essentially says, I know you are a kinsman redeemer. Here I am. Will you marry me? She proposes. Now, I know that's not, that's not unheard of today for a female to propose, but back then it just wasn't done. 
Women didn't take the lead. What I love about this is it just paints this picture of Ruth. She's this strong, no-nonsense woman following God. But remember, that's not the whole picture. Ruth is of the lowest class possible. Boaz, from what we can gather from the story, is at the very least kind of middle, upper, middle, probably upper class. So this poor woman of no standing goes to this man of great standing and says, will you marry me? This is one of the many powerful stories in the Bible that seeks to elevate the respect of women and the poor in the eyes of the readers who would have been shocked if not offended by the gall of Ruth doing that. I'm always curious at looking at this. As humans, we are so slow to respond to God's attempts to reform us in our cultures. I mean, look, it took another 3,000 years for women to get the vote. That's kind of stubbornly slow, right, for God's work to take place in us, and yet he keeps at it, keeps at it. Yet the Bible is portraying as a God-inspired example a woman confident enough to break the social norms, and yet she also does it with tremendous grace. You see it in Tamar, you see it in Ruth. What do they have in common? They are both in the line of Jesus, communicating to us that God is powerful, powerfully proud to identify with his lineage. Why? For two reasons. Because in his lineage, through stories of Ruth and Tamar and others, it both represents powerful stories of how God wants to elevate the dignity of all humanity, in these instances, women, and at the same time, it also represents the utter honesty of what Jesus came to save, how messed up and how far we have been from God, that God is willing to love even those who blame him and doubt him and sin against him and his creation. But that's not the end of the beauty of God's love story in this, in this story. Boaz marries Ruth, they have a child, but, but here's the deal. The first child together doesn't belong to Ruth and Boaz, according to the law. It belongs to Naomi in the Leveret Law. The first child is the redeemer of the line of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, because all of her sons had been lost. And Naomi is the one who gets to call the child her own and raise it as her own. Such sacrificial love. I mean, yeah, we know that they knew the law and they knew this was going to be the case. They expected it. But we can know the law of God and it doesn't make the willingness to obey the law any less sacrificial and loving. In this, the story wraps all the way around because we see that Ruth didn't go through all of this to benefit herself. She did it for Naomi. So as we close, let's quickly spotlight three truths that help us carry hope. First is this. Loving God, loving others means we love sacrificially for their benefit and not ourselves. And that is what brings hope in life. As our story did last week, this story takes that often nebulous feeling word that we call love and it brings it out of that mist into just really stark, actionable relief. We lift others up by our actions and place others' needs above our own and the way we care for others. Paul Miller in his book, A Loving Life, with Jack, which is actually the basis for the Ruth small group study beginning in January, says it this way. He says, it's a really encouraging staging. Death is at the center of love. That's just wonderful. That sounds fun, right? But it's what Jesus came to do. And it's what Jesus did for us. And Jesus invites us to discover the joy and fulfillment 
of a legacy that comes when we learn to love with that kind of love. See, what we often make love into is it has to be this two-way street. I love you, you love me, we both feel good and we're both happy. But love is not keeping score. Love is not dependent on the actions of the other person. Love is purely our actions, my actions, your actions, your willingness to serve and care and love for another, regardless of how it makes you feel. That's how Naomi loved Ruth. That's how Ruth loved Naomi. That's how Jesus loves you and me. Second in the story, we see again that God carries hope for us and works through even the most difficult circumstances to bring hope. I mean, let's be honest with the story. We see no immediate miracles in the story of Ruth and Naomi. The book starts with a famine affecting thousands. It narrows the story to the pain and loss in a particular family. And from there explores the really long, difficult road through grief and desperation. In that there are no dreams, big dreams from God and visions, big words from God. In fact, God is rarely mentioned in the book other than a few people praying to him or blessing people in his name. Yet we often miss in this verse in the, the, that's in the center of the book, this, uh, that's in the story. It's Ruth 2, and it says this. It says, so she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in the field of Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. She just happened to end up in the field belonging to Boaz from the same clan, one of the kinsmen redeemers. See, if we see the reality of this life clearly, in all the conglomeration of humanity's sin and sinful choices that make life so messed up all over the world, in our family, all around us, and make it harder for God's good to come to pass, make it harder for God to work in life, God is still the orchestrator of moments. He can create the circumstances for a breakthrough. And through this Ruth's seeming coincidence, Obed is born, the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David, the, in the lineage of Jesus. I mean, what a legacy out of the ashes. The salvation of the whole world comes through this Moabite woman who saw God's love even in Naomi's utter depression and bitterness and chose to follow that God and just happened to go to Boaz's field one day. And what that tells us is God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't cause the pain. Our sin is more than capable of causing everything negative that happens in the world today. But he doesn't waste anything either. He turns it into an opportunity. Even the difficult day, every unforgettable day, every mundane day, God is at work. Maybe you are... A, in a place where you feel a little bit like Naomi or Ruth and this, and you don't, you don't see a lot of evidence, maybe no evidence of God working. To the contrary, it probably feels to you like God might even be against you for some of you. But God is working. He's doing a million different things, even though we can't always see it at first. And one day, as we hold on, because of the one who carries hope for us, that hope will erupt into something beautiful, and meaningful. And third, you never know what kindness you do or what risk you take is going to break through to hope. 
See, Ruth didn't know her kindness to Naomi would touch the heart of Boaz. She didn't know if the risks she took that night sleeping at his feet would pay off. But she was consistent in getting up each day and taking the next step of kindness and risking boldly. That it paid off for her. And it paid off for Naomi. God worked through Ruth to carry hope for Naomi. And sometimes that's just what we need in life. We need a friend to carry hope for us because we don't feel it. So how can we apply this today? Well, all of us face life's misfortunes and calamities at times. When we face that, how how do you respond? Whom do you blame? Uh, do you do you identify with either Ruth and, and carrying hope for Naomi when calamity starts or maybe Naomi's feelings like God is against her are more what you feel in those moments? If you're here and you're depressed, you're anxious, you're grieving, you're overwhelmed, stressed, not knowing the way out like Naomi, God honestly welcomes your vulnerability. And he treats that, like our song said, as a Hallelujah. I mean, the fact that you're even here today, staying on the path of God is one of the greatest expressions of love for God. You may not feel like you love God right now with all that's going on, but love isn't often a feeling. Know that God is for you, even though it doesn't feel like it. Know that God is crying with you in your grief, working on your behalf, He sees your confusion and your frustration and your lack of knowing what the way is out, even though you might not see it right now. He's working on your behalf. If you aren't in that place of Naomi, then take a moment to ask yourself, where am I loving for what I get back instead of loving sacrificially? Maybe today, how can I seek the best for those around me, even though it might mean sacrificing the best for me? And watch how God will show up. And not only create a legacy in the lives of others, but in your life as well. That legacy may not come at first, may not come for years, but it will come. What does this have to do with Christmas? Well, if Naomi's love in her desperation allowed God to capture Ruth's heart so much because she was willing to face discrimination and face hardship in a foreign land as she took care of Naomi, then if you really get in touch with what this season means, how great the demonstration of Christmas is of God's love for us, how sacrificial his love for us is, and it's going to capture your heart and your life won't be the same. I didn't say this in the first service, but I suspect there are some people here or maybe you're listening online or watching online and you've struggled with your faith you have not made a choice to be all in in your faith because there in your history there was this godly person who suffered so greatly and you could never figure out they loved you so greatly but they suffered so greatly and you could never figure it out if they suffer so much and God loves them why doesn't he fix that? And that's been a barrier for you in your faith. You don't trust God's love. Could I suggest that this story might expose that our our perspective on that is off? That we need to flip the script on that? 
And we need to see how that godly person who loved God so much and knew God's love, even in their desperation so much, that they loved you with self-sacrificial love in that moment, that that is truly God's love that he wants you to experience. And that that God who says himself in his word that he will one day fix everything, but right now everything isn't going to be fixed, so be prepared for that. Understand that. He actually warns us that we're still going to experience hardship and difficulty. Then maybe we're blaming the results of sin and not trusting him that he will one day fix us and not choosing to see the love that really is there in that moment. Because those people who were godly and loved you even when they were going through a difficult death or whatever it was in their life, they were showing you how much God loves you. And they were showing you how worth it it is to follow that God even in the most difficult times of life. That's the God I think you want. And if you don't know that God... If that's not the God you've committed your life to, if you've never made the commitment to God in that way, then I suggest that after when we get done after the song and there's people praying down here, I'm not going to pray because I don't want to give anybody anything. When there are people down here, I suggest you come down and talk to them and they'll lead you into making that statement for God. If you're listening to us online and you want to make that decision, then email us at the office this week. We'll get in touch with you and we'll help you process that decision. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I'm just so grateful that you are so wise to be so raw and real in what you put in Scripture. That you give us this beautiful story of Ruth, that you share us the gospel, the good news through this story. Lord, for those here who feel like Naomi, who feel like they've run aground, who feel like they don't know where you're at in their life, that they're just struggling to see hope and see a way through, Lord, I pray that you would come to them right now in this moment and that you would allow them to be vulnerable and to express, even through the words of this next song, that pain, that frustration. Lord, we're just so grateful that you're so pleased that you receive that as something greater than a hallelujah. And would you help us all learn to be carriers of hope like Ruth, that we can help one another through those times and help the world around us through those times, that people would know how much you love us, how much you love them. So we're grateful and we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join in worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.